Whoa, welcome to Left Out, reality-based independent radio on WRCT 88.3 FM and podcasting on the World Wide Web at leftout.info. Left Out discusses the news from a perspective left out of the mainstream media. I'm Bob Harper. I'm Danny Slater. And today's program is produced by Tina Milo. Uh, we have uh, on Left Out today uh, a guest from, that we've had on before in the past talking about economic issues. We have uh, uh, Dr. Christian Weller, who's a senior fellow from the Center for American Progress and who has all since, uh, uh, since his last appearance has become also an associate professor of public policy at UMass Boston. Uh, Christian Weller, uh, welcome to Left Out. Thank you very much for having me. Well, it's a heck of a time for economists, all I can tell you. Uh, I'm sure you have plenty of things, plenty of things uh, on your mind and plenty of things to talk about. I wonder uh, whether we, we might start with uh, the bewildering uh, state of affairs in the worldwide economy. That'll, that ought to uh, give you something to, to, uh, to describe. Well, I think for many of us and many of our listeners, we it, it, it really don't understand fully what the heck is going on and what is going to happen. Maybe the what is going to happen part, maybe nobody does. But perhaps you could recap for us like what has been happening in the last month where I personally have lost vast sums of money, and I'm sure other people have lost lots more, but uh, self relative to my own abilities, it was a lot of money to lose. So I'm upset about it. So uh, tell, tell us more. What's going on? Well, I think the important piece to keep in mind is that we have basically two crises right now. We have a financial market crisis. That's what destroys your home values and then your stock portfolios and your 401ks. And then we have... Um, an economic crisis. We have an economic slowdown that's been going on for a number of years. They're not completely separate, but um, I, I think it's important in order to keep in mind, to, to, to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on in the last few months, to, to keep that separate for the purposes of this discussion. Okay. Um, when, you, when you think about the financial market crisis, you have overall economic weaknesses that play into it. Um, people losing their jobs and not being unable, uh, being unable to, to pay their home mortgages. But that is overlaid with a much bigger problem that um, basically banks for the years, especially 2004, 2005, and to some degree in 2006, essentially threw uh, standards of prudent lending out the window and said, okay, well, we're just going to make loans to anybody and everybody, and we're just going to ignore that. Um, whatever risk we're going to take on, we're going to, we're going to ignore what's happening with our balance sheets because we can turn around and unload their risk onto somebody else, a German bank, a Norwegian pension fund, and so on and so forth. Ultimately, what happened in 2000, early 2007 was that that risk reared its head and that the foreclosure rates started to go up again. So the number, the share of mortgages that went into foreclosure went up and went up very quickly. Um, at first, I think a lot of bankers were willing to ignore what was going on, saying like, ah, oh, it's not that bad uh, because it's still somewhat within the historical norm. But by the end of 2007, the foreclosure rate had reached levels we've never seen before. So higher than anything we had seen in 40 years. And not only that, but the foreclosure rate started to accelerate. Uh, not all, so we were at high levels, but they kept on growing even faster than they had before. And that basically sent a shiver uh, through the financial community that there may be a lot of bad stuff out there um, and losses for the banks 
um, both in the U.S. and abroad, could accumulate very quickly. And that's exactly what happened. They accumulated very quickly in the first quarter of 2008 and the second quarter of 2008. And um, you had banks, big banks like Bear Stearns and then ultimately Lehman Brothers failing. And the, what sent the whole system into panic mode was essentially Lehman Brothers couldn't get financing over a long weekend of negotiations. Um, and everybody else essentially stopped and said, look, we don't know. Everybody else on Wall Street essentially stopped and said, like, look, we don't know how much bad stuff is out there. I'm rather going to hang on to my own money, maybe give it to the federal government. That seems to be the safe bet. But I'm not going to lend it to the other banks, and I'm not going to lend it to homeowners, because who knows who's going to pay me back. And so what you've had for the past eight, four weeks is essentially a credit market that went into panic mode where nobody could get credit, um, and, I mean, except for the federal government. State and local governments couldn't get funding. You remember Arnold Schwarzenegger had to say, like, we have to turn to the federal government to borrow $7 billion dollars. Massachusetts government couldn't finance the short-term money they needed to make payroll. So that kind of panic mode came about with a somewhat delayed reaction here to the rise in this sharp, unprecedented rise in foreclosures where bankers said, okay, well, we don't know how much bad stuff is out there. Let's not lend to anybody until this is all settled. And while that may make sense for one bank, for an economy, it is certainly detrimental. And uh, I think that's ultimately what the financial crisis is, what also the destabilization, this Emergency Economic Stabilization Act, the $700 billion is about, uh, is really meant to unfreeze the credit markets, to kind of give banks a pat on the back and say, like, it's okay, you can lend again. We will back up the money that you may be losing here. Start giving money to others again. So and one question is, uh, I, it's uh, my naivety coming into play here, but it, it, it's sort of surprising uh, uh, from a naive perspective that home uh, home foreclosures, foreclosures on home mortgages, which even if they, I don't know what the exact figures are, but even if they had doubled or something, how can that bring down the world economy? I mean, it seems crazy. It's just one sector, right? It's just not. It's, it's one sector. It's a lot. Um, <clears throat> you got to remember um, that in terms of overall mortgage, lending, mortgages are a big chunk in the U.S. economy. And um, you also have to remember that banks generally put other people's money to work, not their own. But when there are losses, that's their own money first and foremost. So they lose their own equity. And for the second quarter of 2008, which is the last numbers we have for foreclosures and delinquencies, you got to remember, one in 11 mortgages, 9%, one in 11 mortgages, was either delinquent or in foreclosure. We, that, that's beyond anything we've ever seen or thought was possible. So um, if, let's say like if even half of those um, mortgages ultimately go into foreclosure and, and are lost, that could wipe out the entire equity of banks. Um, and that means... Because equity is generally like their own money is a fairly small share of, of the total money that's in play. And what that means is like when a bank disappears, it's like the giant sucking sound of Wall Street. A bank disappears and it basically has to recall all of its loans or it can no longer make loans. 
unless it gets taken over. And and so, like things disappear in in it's like in, in a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life where where you say like, okay, well, this money is going to the bank and mm-hmm. the home, and and so you start recalling those loans, and the whole things the whole economy starts slowing down. And I think that's the, the panic fed on itself. Okay, well, if I'm not lending, nobody else is lending. That means the economy is tanking, which means I'm even less likely to see my money coming back. So let me stop right. all the lending that I'm doing. So there's lots of stuff to discuss following on this. But let me mention one thing before Danny wants to jump in, which is uh, so one issue that I thought you might bring up with respect to the the uh, the effect of uh, the mortgage foreclosures was the leveraging that was going on. And my understanding is a few years ago uh, in the infinite wisdom of our Republican government, had changed the rules on the percentage of equity and the amount of leverage that the banks could use from something like on the order of 15 to 1 to something like on the order, I think in Bear's case, was like 40 to 1. Can you expand on that? Because I think it's a regulatory issue, and I'm wondering what your thought is about that. Um, There are some regulatory issues and some oversight issues. Um, Leverage generally has spread throughout the economy. I don't know the exact uh, ratios. Um, The... the Generally, uh, leverage has proliferated in the U.S., meaning people were borrowing other people's money, like bankers, hedge funds, um, homeowners, everybody, because money was so cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, and to some degree, because everybody wanted to invest in the United States, for better or worse. And um, the the primary factors here are often regulatory, as you said, like regulatory oversight. Mm-hmm. Letting banks take on more leverage, also not issuing, and I think that's important on the mortgage side. The Federal Reserve had guidelines, had the power to issue guidelines to the banks and say, like, you got to be careful. These are the standards under which you should be lending, and they didn't use that power when it was clear to everybody that there was too much leverage. Meaning, for instance, that the proliferation of zero down. Mortgages, so you could get a mortgage without any of your uh, any of your own money uh, at stake, or what was called negative amortization mortgages, where you actually took out a mortgage, (laughs) paid for your house, and get some money back. Um, Those kinds of things, um, the Federal Reserve could have stopped with issuing new guidelines. Um, It did ultimately issue those new guidelines, but not until early 2008. So there were, it's not just the government that failed down, not, not just the, the administration, um, but it was also the Federal Reserve that didn't use the power that it had already on the books to rein in some of this over-leveraging that was going on. And so people could, for example, um, they could buy houses, as you said, without putting any of their own money into it with the hope of riding the, the bubble, the housing bubble up. So this is not just this is not just poor people, not just average people who are trying to buy houses to live in. These are spe- these are speculators who are using this mechanism to right this to make free money. Well, there are certainly speculators in the market. By most estimates, by my own estimates too, um, it's about twenty percent of the market boom. So the speculators aren't. All, I mean, they're they're big chunk, um, but not the overwhelming majority. Um, is a rule of thumb um, in the markets and economics. Borrowers always want more money than the banks are willing, should be willing to give them. Um, the, the the lender, the borrower, generally there there are some bad apples out there, and then 
they they know generally whether they'll be running away with the money defaulting on the mortgage and, and the the banks are the ones who are supposed to act prudently to prevent this from happening um, but in this system the general like safety valves that the incentives that banks have to prevent this from happening meaning that they that they should realize that their own money is at stake and that they could lose substantial amounts of money just simply didn't work, um, largely because everybody in the whole mortgage generation process thought that they can unload the risk onto somebody else. Musical so chairs. It's, so right. it, yeah, it was a, <clears throat> like that's exactly it. I mean, it's more like a so, game of hot potato. The risk so, was just the, there was no proper accounting for risk at all. I mean, it's appropriate to have <clears throat> risk in financial markets, and there's a trade-off between risk and potential reward. And and to, but somehow they managed to take these very risky things and conceal them as low risk or well, they're, they're, I don't, I don't, I don't. I think if it was truly fraudulent, that then uh, you can you can make an argument here for suing the banks. But I, I think the system. Uh, I don't. I, th- I think a lot of people generally knew what was going on. There was nothing here that was really truly concealed. Um, I, I, I have a hard time when multi-billion-dollar companies tell me that they were taken for a ride. Um, I mean, you got to look at it. The, the problem was that everybody really thought they can just simply unload the risk to somebody else. And in economics, it's called the theory of the greater fool. You so, look around and look for somebody else. So that's how bu- it, that's how bubbles always work. Huh? That's exactly how. I mean, but it starts with the mortgage brokers. Like eighty mm-hmm. percent of all new mortgages started with the mortgage brokers. So they this- could turn around, give it to the bank. The bank then does this bundling and slicing and dicing that happens that I think a lot of people now know from the local newspapers and then sell it to hedge funds and they turn around and they sell it to the Norwegian pension fund and the German banks and the French banks and the Belgian banks and the British banks and everybody else and, and the Chinese government and Singapore government and and they then either know what they have and, and or they turn around and sell it again to somebody else in the hopes that Eventually, somebody other than them will have will end up with the risk. So, and uh, part of it is that a lot of the stuff wasn't regulated. Mortgage brokers, for instance, are poorly regulated, and some of the stuff is just simply not transparent. Um, so, and that's particularly hedge funds and private equity firms. Right. So, what percentage of the defaulting mortgages would uh, is, are there figures available to say are you know owner occupied primary residence? The, we don't have those numbers. That's, okay, because that's um, the one I'm very suspicious about. That's the number but I it's want. Large, largely, most of them are owner-occupied. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are some. Um, obviously, some speculators are going under, but a lot of speculators are often large um, real estate developers and others who have the, the, the wherewithal at least to convert some of their properties into rental properties. Um, so, so it's not... I, I think we we haven't really seen a good demographic breakdown, a good breakdown um, and of ownership of whether this is investment-driven or owner-occupied-driven. Um, we also don't quite know um, where it's concentrated. It was clear in the beginning that it seemed to be concentrated, especially among minority 
um, communities, but that's largely a factor of where the labor market downturn hit first, and hit largely Latinos first mm-hmm. um, and African Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, but it clearly seems to have spread. I mean, the numbers are too large to to affect really. So, so that brings me to a, a particular uh, Republican meme at the moment, which is to blame all of this on the Community Re- Reconstruction Act, or what does it R stand for? The CRA Community Reinvestment Act. Reinvestment Act from uh, 1977. So this is all Jimmy Carter's fault, and in fact, it's not a matter of too little regulation, it's a matter of too much regulation. I wondered if you could comment on that. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's amazing how quickly conservatives um, spun around and, and start finger-pointing at, at um, some regulatory tool. The Community Reinvestment Act requires that banks that collect deposits in a community have to... Uh, that are guaranteed, be, yeah. Yeah, and they have to bring the money back into the community. Um, it's, I think, 60% of the deposits collected in a community have to be reallocated, have to be given out in loans to that community. There's nothing in the Community Reinvestment Act that says you have to engage in imprudent lending standards. You have to um, issue negative amortization rates. Um, there's nothing here. There was also no nothing here that said that, that somehow the, these banks ended up with a disproportionate share of deposits and that they just simply didn't know what else to do with the money. And on the contrary, a lot of this money was money from big investors coming from overseas that was seeking an outlet in the U.S. market. So it wasn't like the, the local community bank that all of a sudden had billions of dollars in deposits and said, like, oh, God, where are we going to do with this? Right. Um, let's lower our lending standards so that everybody, that, that we can just simply hand it out like... Uh, hot donuts. Um, so th- this is just not the way. Um, th- th- this is a ruse. Um, I think it's a complete fallacy. It's just simply not the way the regulation works. It's, it's also it defies uh, reasonable economics. I mean, as I said, like in order to make this work, in order to say like, okay, the subprime mortgage mess was created by the Community Reinvestment Act, you would have to somehow explain how all of a sudden these small banks. Um, that are often subject to this rule uh, that operate in lower-income communities all of a sudden ended up with massive new deposits from that community because if it's money that they collect right. in international capital markets, the community reinvestment doesn't apply to them. Right. Yeah. So, so I think that's the, I think that's really <coughs> what you need to understand that the money, the, the big liquidity came from overseas. It came from rich, really rich individuals in the U.S., the people who had money in the last few years. It didn't come from low-income communities. You mentioned something about transparency. Well, you mentioned two things which are a little bit, to me, contradictory. You said, well, there are these, uh, you, you, you didn't believe that there was anything being concealed from these multi-billion dollar corporations, but then you also mentioned the lack of transparency. So, there are those two. So I don't know right, how you recognize. I mean, there wasn't. Yeah, the, the one thing we. The one thing. Let me. Yeah, that, I think that's a good point. Let me um, make this very clear. What I mean was what was clear was that the risk, the amount of risk that was was in the market was very clear. I, I think the the banks knew um, that the things were just, especially the banks knew that the mortgage brokers were doing things that just simply wasn't weren't reasonable. Um, they knew about the proliferation uh, from, from all the surveys they did, did themselves, but also from some of the government statistics. They knew of the proliferation of these adjusted mortgages, negative amortization ones, 
um, interest-only mortgages, all of that. What was not known in the end was who ended up with how much of that risk. So, and that's ultimately, that, that's the, 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 the problem here that, the, I mean, that, that caused the problem in the last few weeks is everybody knows that there's a lot of bad stuff out there. The problem is nobody knows who owns it because you don't have full transparency on a lot of the hedge funds and a lot of the other institutional investors or overseas. So the problem is if you're a bank and you're, you need to give out money, you don't really know who has – you know there's a lot of bad stuff out there, but you don't know who owns it. So the question then is who you're going to give your money to. And in this case, because the chance of losing a lot is fairly large, you're, the, you get this panicky reaction that basically the only body who can get money at this point is the federal government. Hmm. So do you think that implies that there is some notion that there ought to be a increased regulation, for example, of hedge funds, increased requ uh, reporting requirements or, or uh, requirements for – Risk risk analysis or the, the composition of, of various uh, um, uh, financial um, constructions. What are they called? Not constructions. Financial um, vehicle. No financial. Yes, yes. financial vehicles. Uh, That's not there, the word. There's another word. Financial uh, there, instruments. That's it. There, there is there is certainly a good discussion to be had over financial regulation. Um, there's a number of issues that are on the table that, that really need to be considered. The first one is streamlining of the financial institutions. There is an, an alphabet soup in the U.S. that is taking care of the financial markets. There's the Securities and Exchange Commission. There is the Commodities and, Trade, Commodities and Future Trading Commission. There is the, the Office of the Control of the Currency. There's the Federal Reserve. There's the Thrift Supervision. There's a number of those that are all have all a hand in this, and there is often not enough coordination between them because some of them regulate in, uh, institutions, others regulate instruments. So, so there there is like not there's no clear guidelines, no clear coordination, with, at least within the U.S. market. So I, I think there's a streamlining, and, and uh, Secretary Paulson actually started this discussion earlier this year where he said like okay well we need to create a much tighter regulatory system and i think that's a i mean i think there's a lot of flaws with this proposal but that's certainly something where a lot of, i think a lot of people agree that you do want to streamline that the other part is um you do want to increase transparency you you want to make sure that the big players the people who have money who can generate risk who can absorb risk um, are, are transparent for all the market participants, and that probably will require more transparency, more oversight of hedge funds and private equity firms and others. Um, but that's certainly one part of the discussion. And then the other part is the interaction between what we have in terms of regulations and, for instance, accounting standards, like with other parts of this market. There are There's some discussion over the fact that we've changed just before the crisis. We've changed our accounting standards. Um, that we're supposed to uh, make the system more stable. Um, and just as the crisis were hitting, the bankers said actually the accounting standards have made it worse. And there is, um, there, there, there is, that's one part. And then the fourth part is, is really 
um, the rating agencies. Um, how do they fit? Should they be regulated? Um, because a lot of rating agencies basically approved some of these bad mortgage bundles and said, like, that's fine. That's AAA, the AAA They're rating AAA is because they yeah. have insurance, um, except that <laughs> the insurance companies ultimately didn't have enough <laughs> reserves to, to cover the promises that they've made, like AIG. So, so there is... There is um, there is a number of big issues like streamlining, transparency, accounting, and rating agencies. So those are, I think, the four of the big ones. And if I think about it, I, I can probably think of a few more. But those are the big ones I can think of right off the top of my head. And, and those are the ones I think that you need to put together in a nice, neat bundle and say, okay, well, let's have a conversation, a serious, longer conversation with all of the stakeholders involved about how we're going to get this mess sorted out and how do we learn from this um, crisis and generate a system that actually works for the future. Yeah, so that's a good uh, good point. So what what do we do? I mean, I mean what do you think is political? I hate to say it this way, but what do you think is politically feasible? I think there is a substantial appetite um, in Congress to take up the regulatory issue. Um, you got to remember, by all accounts, the Democrats will have the majority in Congress after the election, um, and there is clearly some some appetite to take a clear, hard look at this. You also got to remember that a lot of stakeholders generally are interested, at least in parts of this, um, and in particular, for instance, consumers. Consumers definitely want to know. How can we improve the transparency and, and the security of their 401ks or their IRAs, their retirement accounts? That's right. The bankers want to have a conversation about accounting rules. Um, they basically came out, the American Bankers Association, asked for special relief during a crisis and said, like, look, this is not working for us. Um, so they're, they're, I know that the venture capital industry would like to have a conversation about the accounting rules, and I know that the pension funds would like to have a conversation about the accounting rules. So there's a number. And then on the rating agencies, I think everybody, again, would like to talk about what the, what the role of the rating agencies was in, the, in all of this. So, so there, there, is, I, I, there aren't that many people who say, like, let's not do anything. Um, I think there's a lot of people who say, like, look, we can, we can streamline this, we can increase transparency, we can increase oversight to make the thing work better, the, market, the financial markets work better without really putting too much sand in the wheels of the financial markets. So turning, uh, one thing I would like to do toward the end of our, our time together is uh, to discuss what we thought at the outset was the econ world economic crisis, or I would describe as the world economic crisis. And obviously it's tied up with the financial crisis. In fact, a lot of it seems to be you know, precipitated by the financial crisis. But tell, tell us more. What do you see as the world uh, economic outlook? I mean, I see that markets are crashing throughout the world. I don't know how much of this, what all the linkages are. I know, for example, that Iceland is essentially bankrupt uh, and obviously, all the major uh, major industrial countries are panicking and going through outrageous lengths to uh, shore up their economies and their uh, financial system. I wonder if you could comment on that. Well, I, I think the important part is yes, there are linkages, and it's largely because people <laughs> in Iceland, for instance, can't like the, the banks that lent to Iceland. Uh, are now recalling their money and saying, like, we need the money ourselves in Germany and France and Norway, wherever else. So Iceland, however, doesn't have the money. It's, again, 
it would have to stop a number of projects, ask the borrowers to repay the loans immediately, and that doesn't happen. So um, that's typically what happens during a bank run. Um, And that's basically what is happening in Iceland. You have a classical bank run. Um, But it's important to understand that what the Europeans are doing, the Europeans have committed $1.8 trillion in support for the financial systems. The U.S. has committed $700 billion. So you're talking $2.5 trillion here that are committed to shoring up the financial system. But you would think that that ultimately would come down to markets. You look at the market today, it dropped by 730 points um, in the, the Dow in the United States. The important piece here is that, yes, we've taken care of the financial system, but we haven't really taken care of the economy. We, so, so, and the bankers are beginning to realize this, and Wall Street is beginning to realize this. Okay, well, maybe the banks are okay, but there's still more job losses to come, more companies are going to go bankrupt, right. and you just simply have the chance of a good old-fashioned recession that's going to hurt businesses and people. And we haven't talked about that. We haven't really addressed in all of this attention on Wall Street. We haven't really addressed how we're going to take care of incomes and income losses, both among businesses and among people. And, and so there is this realization, there's this wake-up call all of a sudden. It's like, oops, now we took care of the banks. What about the rest of the economy? That has to happen in order to really get the whole thing turned around. And, and I think that's the, the part that's beginning to bubble up in the U.S., where we have now a discussion, a starting discussion, over, for instance, the second stimulus, where the government would actually spend the proposals right now for $150 billion to spend, for instance, on infrastructure, on aid to the states, um, on improved unemployment insurance and food stamps. Those kinds of things could go directly to helping people and businesses um, to pay their bills, to maintain their projects um, and ultimately stabilize the economy. And the hope is that other countries will follow suit in that direction. But again, at this point, it's just a starting discussion in the United States. Because the important point, if I understand correctly, is that 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 kind of stimulus, that that kind of money goes directly into the real economy. That's exactly it. I mean, you've got to remember, you you have the banks that, yes, what these $700 billion will do is they will allow banks to lend to each other. But then the question is, will they still lose money just the good old-fashioned way that people simply lose their jobs? and can no longer pay back their bills and pay back their loans, and you just simply have create a new problem or have another problem somewhere else. And um, that's the big worry at this point, that, um, the, that we've turned a blind eye to the chance of a recession, or just regular good old-fashioned re- recession happening um, that can spill over into financial markets. Um, but um, I think that's the next thing that needs to be addressed with, with good policy measures, and ultimately that will require actually spending money and giving people money uh, so that to, to help them cover the losses from job loss or businesses going under. Yeah, I, I just well, I, I think we should wind up this uh, this, but I do just make one general comment. Um, you know, the economy. One of the things it's supposed to do is figure out what what we're supposed to produce as a, as a society, right? I mean, it automatically so, so supposedly figures out what what we need to produce. But it just seems to me that this country is is because of the distribution of wealth, we're spending too much money on 
you know, immense mansions and yachts and expensive airplanes, expensive stuff that's used by only a few rich people instead of the infrastructure, the public transportation, the, uh, you know, energy infrastructure, all the other stuff that we really need to do. And it seems like the only way of, in my, in my naive, you know, liberal uh, perspective, or I'm not that liberals are naive, but I'm, I'm naive economically, is you need to tax the rich. That you need to move that money from these useless projects that the rich spend it on to stuff that we all need. Well, I mean, I think the primary lesson is from the rising income inequality is the only way you can keep an economy going with sharply higher income inequality as we had is by letting low-income families and moderate-income families borrow beyond their means. And that clearly right. didn't work. Yeah. Uh, so let's try something else, something like good wages and good jobs and good benefits for everybody. All right. On that note, uh, thank you very much. We've been talking to Christian Weller, who's a senior fellow from the Center of American Progress and associate professor at University of Massachusetts at Boston. Uh, thank you very much for being on Left Out today, Christian Weller. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you all for listening to Left Out. We'll be back in uh, two weeks' time with another, we hope, interesting topic. And uh, thank you today to Tina Milo for producing today's program.